want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, Matthew chapter 7. As we turn to the book of Matthew, we are returning after our brief Thanksgiving break um, to our study of this book that presents Jesus as the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. And this morning, we will be turning for the first time to chapter 7, which is the third chapter that records the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us all along, you might recall that it was back in chapter 4 that Matthew told us that the theme of Jesus' preaching was repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It had drawn near in the person of the king himself. And as we move into chapter 5, we have this three-chapter section of what it would have sounded like to hear Jesus expand on that. That would have been a short message, right? If all it was was repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we hear the expanded version of that in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in keeping with what Matthew has already emphasized and, and drawn attention to about Jesus, Jesus himself preached in this sermon what true citizens of his kingdom are like. Uh, go ahead and go back to chapter 5. I didn't know till earlier we'd be reading from uh, this section, but just as a reminder where the sermon started, verse number 3, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in what? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There were people in Jesus' day, just like there are those in our day who think that they're okay with God because of some kind of religious affiliation or religious heritage. Um, and they think that, you know, they've kind of hit the, they've checked off the boxes of what it takes to be right with God, to be righteous in the eyes of God. Certain, you know, surface level adherence to a code. But Jesus began from the beginning that, to declare that those that are right with God start with something that is internal. Again, qualities found in the Beatitudes that we read again this morning. Poor in spirit. Those that really, verse 4, grieve, they mourn over their sinfulness and so on. Starts with something internal. And when you get to verse 21, the next major section of the sermon, the, the righteousness that Jesus is after doesn't just take pride in, you know, not violating external demands of the law like verse 21, don't murder. But it undergoes a, a radical transformation on the inside that applies that truth to the words of our mouth and the passions of our heart. And after addressing then the nature of righteousness, it's not external. It isn't superficial. It's something that is internal, that is transformational from the inside. After addressing that at length in chapter 5, in chapter 6, remember the focus changes just a bit to the practice of righteousness. And as chapter 6 opens, there are those three particular corporate religious practices he draws attention to. One is the practice of giving. You can see that verses 2 through 4. And then beginning in verse 5, he draws attention to the practice of prayer. And he addresses that all the way down through verse 15. And then you can see in verses 16 through 18, he draws attention to the practice of fasting. 
And what we saw when we overviewed that entire section is that there was a common caution and, and even rebuke that Jesus gave about all of those. Jesus does expect the citizens of his kingdom to give and to pray and, and to commit to fasting for the advancement of his work. But it is a misguided practice of religious activity to do these things to be seen of men for the praise of men. That's the theme that kept standing out. The Pharisees who practiced their righteousness to be seen of men and to be praised of men, Jesus said, were hypocrites. They're like the actors in the theater who play a part, but they aren't really what they appeared to be and what they want others to believe about them. Hypocritical displays of religious devotion are not a quality that mark the citizens of Christ's kingdom. And then in the section that last occupied our attention, beginning in verse 19, chapter 6, continuing through the end, we learn that true citizens of Christ's kingdom are marked by a certain mindset towards physical and material provisions. Uh, hopefully you have it circled or noted in some way, but verse 24 is the hinge verse in that passage, and it warns us that you can't serve, you can't slay for, at the end of the verse, God and material wealth at the same time. And one way slavery to wealth displays itself is backing up to verse 19, leading up to the hinge, verses 19 through 23. Uh, you, you, you display slavery to wealth by treasuring up treasures where? On earth and not in heaven. But then you move to the other side of that hinge verse, and a second way slavery to wealth is displayed is by, verse 25, doing what? It is by worrying about the resources that you think you are lacking. And so with those sections of the sermon reviewed, we now move to chapter 7. And the Lord is still speaking about the practice of kingdom righteousness. The development's going to be a little less structured now, but we can still pick out a subject. If you look at, uh, and first of all, in verse number 3, the first phrase of verse number 3 refers to how you treat, and you can see those words, your brother. And then if you go still here in chapter 7 to verse number 4, you can see another reference to your brother. You can see it again at, at the end of verse 5. Come down and see thy brother's eye. In verse 6, it's not going to be your brother, but there are certain people that can be described as dogs and pigs. And how should we relate to them? If you look at verse number 12, you see this broader statement therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you do ye even so to them and i'm jumping even further ahead but look at verse 15 and there's a warning about what kind of people about false prophets and how should we respond to them so all of these references point to practicing righteousness in certain relationships both with those that are inside and those that are outside the kingdom. How, how should you relate to your brother? How should you relate to whatever's being described there as pigs and dogs? How should we relate to, to false teachers? How do we practice righteousness 
in these relationships. Now, what we're going to see is that several statements in this section of Jesus' teaching have actually become some of the most well-known statements of our Lord, but they are at the same time some of the most misinterpreted and even abused teachings of our Lord. And before I get you to look at the first phrase, I, I want to get you thinking by um, citing the observation of a Bible teacher by the name of John, uh, Don Carson. But he wrote this, he said, there was a time when scarcely any person in the English-speaking world would not have been able to recite, what verse do you think he would give? What verse would you say is probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible? Okay, John 3, 16, and that's what he said. It, there was a time when scarcely any person in the English-speaking world would not have been able to recite John 3, 16. Doubtless it was the best uh, known verse in the entire Bible. But then he went on to say this, there is another verse today that is perhaps more frequently quoted almost as a defiant gesture by some people who do not know their Bibles very well, but think it authorizes their biases. That verse is Matthew 7, 1. Look at it. Judge not that you be not what? That you be not judged. Dr. Carson finished, in an age when philosophical pluralism is on the ascendancy, these seven words might be taken as the public confession. Another Bible teacher talked about that same phrase, judge not that you be not judged. He described it as the mantra of much of the world. And he went on to cite democracy and the spread of democracy around the world as a contributing factor. And, and this teacher is for democracy. But he pointed out that while democracy calls for respecting the value of every person, we have actually moved from calling for the need to respect the value of every person to calling for the uncritical acceptance of every lifestyle, no matter how vile, and for the acceptance of every idea, no matter how erroneous. And in our so-called postmodern world, there's a, there is no absolute truth. In fact, the only individual, the only institution that is not accepted is the one that proclaims there is such a thing as dogmatic truth. And about the worst indictment somebody could fear today is being labeled as judgmental or narrow-minded. And the fact is that anyone that believes anything firmly gets the label. If you actually believe truth exists and you're not budging from it, aha, you're the problem. And we need to be aware of this thinking. And brethren, we need to be aware of the fact that that has spilled over into the affairs of gospel preaching people. It quite frankly has, has affected the way we view preachers, Christian leaders, a Christian organization, we can even start to get leery of those that take strong stands about almost anything. And leaders feel that pressure and are reluctant to just say, this is the way it is, because that seems to turn people away from, from ministry. And in some ways, that, that fear gave rise several decades ago to an entire movement known as New Evangelicalism, a kinder, gentler more accommodating way of doing the Lord's work. 
But that fear of a negative label has impacted whole churches. It's impacted a vast array of parachurch organizations. And, and the impact can be felt right down to parents in our homes. Because our kids say nobody does it that way anymore. And mom and dad say, well, <laughs> all right, but you're in this family and this is the way it is. And we almost fear. We're going to look extreme in our own homes. But this exhortation of the Lord does not forbid all making and pronouncing of judgments. I'm not going to have us turn to other references, but Philippians 1, 9 and 10, Paul actually said, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all, does anybody know the next word? And in all judgment, that ye may approve things excellent and be sincere without offense. He actually prayed that love would grow in making judgment calls. I mean, that blows the mind of our world today that you could have love and judgment calls in the same context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, chapter 5, Paul rebuked a whole church that had not judged. He literally says that. You should have judged already about the presence of this immoral man in your midst, and you should have put him out. In chapter 6, when a church sat back and were, was letting one brother defraud another brother in business dealings and that brother take his brother to court in, in, and before the secular courts, he actually said, is there not a wise man among you? Is there not anyone who can judge? Right, right here in Matthew chapter 7, he is going to refer, I don't know that you've called anyone a dog or a pig, unless you said to one of your kids, you're eating like a pig at the table, you know, practice some manners. But he's going to refer to people as dogs and pigs. And then again, we saw false prophets. And before it's done, Jesus is even going to speak as if he's the ultimate judge with an eternal verdict. I mean, he, people are going to say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and have we not done this? And he said, I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You've probably encountered people in a witnessing situation that will say something like, who made you the judge? And the issue isn't ever our own personal judgment in those kind of settings, but it is our agreement with the judgments that have already been handed down in the scripture. So I'm spending some time, all right, around this verse so that we recognize this text is not a blanket condemnation of judging. It has been very abused in that regard. However, we do need to come back and say, well, then what is it rebuking? Because what this text rebukes is a legitimate problem. There, there's a ditch, if you want to say it that way. I mean, here's the road, and we can get off on the ditch of easy tolerance. Right? But there's, a, there's another ditch. One side is easy tolerance. There's another ditch on the other side of the road. I started with Dr. Carson's commentary. And uh, let, me, let me finish what he went on to say. He said, we must not only expose false interpretations of Matthew 7.1. We must understand what it does say and appropriate it. People who pursue righteousness. And if you just glance back up to chapter 6 and verse 33, we are told to put a priority on what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his what? And his righteousness. And Dr. Carson says people who pursue righteousness are easily prone to self-righteousness. Arrogance. Condescension towards others. 
and uglier, holier-than-thou stance. Hypocrisy. Not all are like that, of course, he says, but the sin of judgmentalism is common enough, and Jesus won't have it. And we do need to come back. Yes, there's a ditch, there's a misinterpretation, there's an abuse of this teaching, easy tolerance. But brethren, the fact is that we all have difficulties with what this text is rebuking. We all have difficulties with judgmentalism. As men with with flesh, we can err on either side at given times. Some of us have, have more of a tendency perhaps to err on one side than the other. And I would just say this, we, we ought to be aware of where our tendency is and recognize it. But the initial approach of Jesus here is, some, is an approach that says, watch out, you all struggle with this. And I'm saying that because the grammar in the Greek language assumes that this is already going on. I'm just going to have you look back, and maybe you made yourself a note. Look at chapter 6 and verse 25, where he says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. And I encouraged you to write in there that the grammar of that imperative is to say, stop something that's already happening. It assumes we all struggle with, chapter 6, with worry at some level. It's the same grammatical construction here in chapter 7 and verse 1. And what that is saying is stop your judgmentalism. He's assuming that it's already happening. And so, brethren, this is Jesus' own witness to the fact that we all, whatever side of a ditch we fall on here, we all do struggle with judgmentalism on a regular basis, and the exhortation is stop doing it. And then he gives, in verse number two, some reasoning behind the exhortation. He gives this general principle in verse two For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And honestly, I think if we, we just read this um, a little bit of a distance from any particular struggle, we're okay with that. I mean, it, it seems fair to say that the way you critique others is the way you're going to get critiqued. I got that. But the fact is, it's when the, the rubber meets the road that we start to have some difficulty. And, and I thought of multiple examples, and I'm sorry, kids, but I'm going to use children as an example because it would be way too embarrassing for me to use adult-level illustrations, <laughs> right? One of your children comes to you with a complaint about another sibling. A student comes to a teacher with a complaint about a classmate, and you've all been there as a parent, you've all been there as a teacher, somebody comes to complain to you about what so-and-so is doing, and you look at them, and you're like... If ever that was the pot calling the kettle black, this is it. Are you kidding me? You're complaining about so-and-so, and sometimes, sometimes you respond by saying, you know what, <laughs> do you really want me to deal with them? Because if I start to deal with them, I'm going to need to deal with you the same way. And you know, sometimes that kid is so worked up that even that kind of reasoning can, 
can hardly get them to back down because right at the moment, all that matters is so-and-so did wrong and they should be dealt with. And you know what? When I'm seeing somebody else's problem, it almost feels like I can't back off for any reason. That would be compromise. And I'm not going to do it. And right now, we're talking about them, not about me and my problems. And the Lord exposes the situation further in the next couple of verses. And he pictures the need as if I'm seeing in my brother, verse number three, I'm seeing in my brother in his eye, that's something that's like a moat or we would say a speck today. Okay, our brother has something in his eye and we can see it. We might actually use a different expression that's, that's become more common. We would say that guy, that girl, whoever it is, they have a blind spot in some area. We can see it's affecting their judgment. He isn't think, seeing things straight with that thing in his eye. But Jesus describes what we're seeing in our brother as something relatively small. Again, it, it, it's a speck. It's a, it's a small defect. Dust, pollen, whatever it is. Yeah, it's a defect, but it's a small thing. And the issue is that at the same time we're aware of the small defect in our brother, we are unaware of some major issues in terms of the end of verse number three, in terms of our own blind spots. I mean, we've got a whole log beam. You want to talk about a blind spot? The brother has them, but have you considered how big your own blind spot is? And what we decide to do, look at verse four, what we decide to do is we're going to confront our brother about his needs. So we say to the brother, let me pull that thing out of your eye. We take it on, we, we take it on ourselves to, to remove that speck. But while we're doing it, verse 4, the end, behold, the beam is in our own eye. I mean, we make the phone call, we send the email, we write the letter, we make a visit, and we are determined we're going to get that speck out of our brother's eye when we haven't dealt with who? We haven't dealt with ourselves. And there are some notable examples of this in the Bible, but I don't know that anyone sticks out as much as when David responded to Nathan. You remember Nathan had come to David, and he told him about a rich man, and he had a multitude of cattle, and he had sheep, and, but when he was getting ready to prepare a dinner for a, a visitor that had come, he took the only lamb of his poor neighbor. And when David heard that account from Nathan, David said, that rich man is going to pay fourfold from his estate. And then he even added, and let his life be taken. And I would just say that response is already overboard. All right? Fourfold might have been appropriate, but David's demanding a man's life in exchange for a what? For a sheep. Okay, that is extreme. But before anything else could be said, as David is waxing eloquent and lower the boom on the guy, Nathan turns to him and says, you're the man. You're the one that I've just pictured. You took your trusted servant's wife. And Nathan went on. 
Nathan was saying, David, you got a huge log beam right in your own eyes, and somehow you're not seeing it. And the teaching of the Lord is confronting our own tendency to exaggerate the other person's issues. We put the worst possible interpretation on what we saw. We presume that we know their motives and that they are ill-intended, and we, we can be very quick to reach a decision. And what we say about ourselves was, well, I didn't mean it that way. I can't believe you would take it that way. That's not what I meant. We give ourselves the benefit of the, of the doubt and leave no leeway for anybody else. And the issue is the double standard in operation. How do we know if we're doing this? Well, we've used some of these descriptions, but whether it's David or listening to the Lord's teaching or, or the examples that we see around this, the quickness to arrive at our opinion, not taking the time to really get the facts and to see the full picture, not taking the time to recognize where I may be kind of substituting my own prejudice about something for principle. I don't take the time to consider a possible other explanation that might leave the other individual in a better light. And the scripture, again and again, demonstrates a very gracious approach. If I go back to David, we have a record of David's faults. I mean, this one is glaring. And we actually have a record of David honestly being in the other side of the ditch later. Maybe he's overacting to himself on one side and later he tolerates sin that he shouldn't have tolerated in his family. And, and we could see his failings, but the prevailing posture of the Lord in the scripture is to refer to David with high commendation. I mean, the New Testament is still describing David as a man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I mean, <clears throat> one man said about this, the Lord throws a blanket of grace over the evaluations of many of our heroes. You go through Hebrews 11, and it's like the hall of faith, right? <laughs> it's our heroes. And you can go back and get into the nitty-gritty of, of, of details of the lives of those men and women, and you find some pretty glaring issues. The Lord himself is so gracious to refer to several of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, those seven churches. He, he's pretty gracious to refer to a couple of them even as churches, <laughs> I mean, some of them were so messed up, it is hard to regard them as having anything to do with Christ. And, and I would just add this, the Lord did say that a day was coming when if they didn't repent, he was going to, remember he pictures them as a candlestick having a light, and if they didn't repent, he said the day's coming when I'm going to do what? I'm going to snuff it out. So this isn't the Lord easy tolerance. He's confronting, and he's calling for repentance, and he's warning. But the fact is, he was patient to not get there, as they say, at the drop of the hat. He didn't get there quickly. <clears throat> and brother, when you, 
when we put it all together and, and, and we consider the, the breadth of the scripture as well as the warning here, the Lord's counsel is not merely mind your own business. We shouldn't come out of, of Matthew 7, 1 with mind your own business. What we should come out of it, Jesus says in John 7 and 20, verse 24, he said to judge righteous judgment. We noted earlier, Paul strongly rebuking the, the Corinthian church for being delayed in their judgment call and acting on it. The counsel isn't mind your own business about everything. But here's the counsel to every one of us. The counsel is, start with who? That's the counsel. The counsel is, start with yourself. And the counsel is even this. The counsel is, be strict with who? Yourself. And be generous with others. That's the counsel. Be strict with yourself and be generous towards others. How can we help to move towards being in a better position about this? Well, before we take it on ourselves to write that letter, okay, that email, that text, before I'm, before I'm ready to hit send, I need to stop and say, first of all, have I really been walking with the Lord as I compose this thing? Is, is my purpose in, in drafting the whole thing, is my purpose really the edification of all that are involved? And even this, am, am I prepared to be evaluated the same way I'm evaluating my brother? These things come right out of this text. Am I walking with the Lord? Is my purpose edification? Am I prepared to be evaluated the way I'm evaluating others? One man said, take the time, sit down, read 1 Corinthians 13, and, and consider, am I exercising my discernment in the context of Christian love? Because when it comes to my relationship to others, love is the fulfilling of the law. And I want us to look at two New Testament texts. Would you turn over to Galatians chapter 5? And as we move towards application, further application this morning, I want us to just see a couple references. Look at Galatians 5 and verse 13. It opens by saying, Brother, ye have been called unto liberty. And, and think about this uh, in the context of, I, I mentioned democracy earlier, and it was interesting to, to read this teacher talk about democracy and its spread and what it's done to just kind of overthrow all authorities and, and boundaries and so on. But think about that. American, as Americans, we celebrate, right? I've got, the, I've got the right to my opinion. I've got the right to freedom of speech. I've got the right to say whatever I want to say. And we, we, we almost kind of commend. I'm, I'm the kind of person that speaks my, that speaks my mind. We, we can commend transparency even. Right? Okay, there's a place for it. But look where he goes with it. 
You've been called unto liberty only. Use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. It's been an unfortunate practice to see in one particular church on a mission field. I got to see close up at hand where the church would grow. Leadership would come in, be there a year, year and a half. As they talk about the kind of honeymoon period. And honestly, just by leadership, ministry, preaching the word, need of the community, the church would grow. But by the time the pastor had been there a year, year and a half, they started to pick at the pastor. They started to pick at the pastor's wife. A missionary that was down the road that observed it for 20 years told me this. He said, I've just watched it, Tom. He said, I watched them start to pick at the pastor, and no one's perfect. Start to pick at the pastor's wife. She isn't perfect. And they just pick, 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 pick until they end up driving them out. And they'd go back to their... 15 to 20 people. Somebody come in, ministry would grow. They pick. He said, I've watched it happen to six different pastors. When we saw the church, they had eight people. And after we were out of the area, they ended up turning on each other. <laughs> here's, here's what... Paul is saying, he said, look, if you, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you end up not, what, consumed of each other. I mean, you're just going to eat yourself right to pieces. You can eat a family to pieces. You can eat a church to pieces. You can eat whatever institution to piece. I really need to get down to motivation and reasoning. Turn over to James chapter 4. There's something more than just the damage that will be done. James chapter 4 and verse 11. Notice it says, Speak not evil one of another. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law but if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now look at verse 12. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Here's, here's some of the most important reasoning there is. For me not exercising a judgmentalism about my brethren, and that is because there really is only one authorized judge. And when it gets right down to it, who is that? Okay, we can even get specific to John chapter 5 and verse 22. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son for the sake of what? For the exaltation of the Son? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul actually said that Jesus had, I'm going to use the word earned, I'm struggling with a better word, 
but Jesus had earned that right to be exalted above everybody else because he did what? He did not grasp his deity, but he humbled himself, took on no reputation, took on the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, humbled himself to become obedient unto death, even the death of the, even the, death of the cross, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Listen, Jesus was granted, maybe that's the right word, Jesus was granted the right to be the only authorized judge by virtue of his voluntary humility and going to the cross. And brethren, we dare not take on ourselves what was won by Jesus on the cross. And the primary reason which I should stop judging after the manner that the Lord critiques here and rebukes here is because it's not my role. Who are, he says it, who are you to judge? Like, there's one that's authorized to make that kind of judgment. And it's none of us. And I need to exalt him and let him fulfill his role and me stay in my, in my role. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I know that anytime we have to do the, the work like we've done here today to say there's ditches on, on either side. And we have to come back and say this isn't forbidding all judging of any kind. There's appropriate judging. There's responsibilities of leadership and we have responsibilities to our brother not to just turn away and mind my own business. I understand that this can all be tricky, difficult, and one moment it's not all settled. But we also need to recognize that here we are in a text where Jesus identifies a problem and knows we all struggle with it and says, stop it, stop it. It's already happening. I know you're struggling with it. But stop it. And so I need to go back. I need to say, first of all, am I really walking with the Lord? Am I aware of the possibility of a massive blind spot on my part? Am I really, is my purpose really edification of everybody involved? And is it even my role? Or do I just need to leave this completely in the Lord's hands?